Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. This reminds me so much of 2008. And I remember getting really bearish at the beginning of 2007. That was tough. Uh, market just didn't figure it out. And I think that's what's happening. Here's my end game for this year. Stock market has a one-third correction based on the S&P 500. Crude oil drops to around 50. Gold rallies. Bitcoin comes out ahead. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by repeat guest, Mr. Mike McGlone of Bloomberg. Mike, welcome back to the show. Uh, hello, Michael. It's good to be back, and thanks for having me back. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, so I, I kind of want to just get into it. Uh, I actually want to start just in general, if you could give us, you know, it kind of seems every single day I wake up uh, and the market has raised its expectation, right? Goldman's putting out a new note that there are going to be even more rate hikes uh, than we thought there were going to be, you know, the week prior. So can you kind of just walk us through what's the current, you know, expectations in terms of rates over the course of the next year? Um, and then what's just, how are you thinking about that? Well, I love to use Fed fund futures because I remember tracking these things almost 20, 30, it's almost 20 years ago when they first came out. And it's like all these, my job was to be a Fed watcher. I started in the business and primary dealer, which your job is to figure out the Fed before they were transparent. Now they're transparent and the Fed fund futures are great. So right now I just pulled up my latest screen. We're priced for 20, I'm sorry, for 10, 25 base point hikes in the next year. So that's mm -hmm. one thing I've been watching for years. It's the Fed, the 13th Fed fund future, which is basically what we, we're March. It's March of 2022, uh, 2023. So a price for right now for 10 hikes, 25. Now, I fully expect the next meeting we're going to see 50 basis point hike, almost a guaranteed, if the stock market keeps going up. And that to me was where we're going to get to a little bit and being a Fed watcher for my whole career is people need to understand that, yes, we've seen risk assets rally, but I guarantee you every single morning that Chairman Powell gets up and he sees higher stock markets, he says, all right, fine, I'll just raise rates more. But I've actually been pretty surprised uh, in terms of how risk assets have held up. So, you know, different pockets of the stock market. So tech has held up pretty well. Crypto is actually holding up uh, a lot better than I thought it was going to. Have you been surprised, you know, in the wake of, you know, these continual, continuous expectations in terms of how much more we're going to hike, how well things have held up? Well, one of the lessons I need to keep learning, and I hate the fact I have to keep learning in this business, is I'm impatient, oftentimes ahead of the game. And this reminds me so much of 2008, which some of us made a lot of money that year, and I was just hedging myself. Um, but it takes forever. You just don't remember me, the periods of impatience. And I remember getting really bearish at the beginning of 2007. That was tough. Uh, market just didn't figure it out. And I think that's what's happening. What I think, I'll, 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 here's my end game for this year. Stock market has a one-third correction based on the S&P 500. Mm. Crude oil drops to around 50. Gold rallies, Bitcoin comes out ahead. That's my base case. There's going to be a lot of nuances. There's going to be a lot of bumps in the road, and I could be wrong. And I think the most wonderful thing to be wrong on this year is if the stock market can get through this period without normal mean reversion. That's how I look at this. Stock market crash of 87 was normal mean reversion. Stock market decline of uh, 2000 to 2002 was just normal mean reversion. And we have, to me, one of the best recipes I've ever seen for normal mean reversion. But it's got to come at pain. It's got to throw you down in the mat, particularly when you're um, the minority, which we are. The majority is buy the dip. Market's never going to go down. Buy the dip. You're stupid if you're not long stocks. And at some point, that narrative, I think, will need to be thrown down in the mat 
for an extended period. So basically, it's just normal human nature. You get too excited and too bullish about narratives, and then you swing back. And I think we're in the transition period. And one good little indicator so far is on the year, as we're speaking on the Friday of March 25th, is the Nasdaq's still down about 10%, and Bitcoin's basically down about 3% in the year, despite the fact that Bitcoin volatility trades about 3x that of Nasdaq. And I use a, a one-year annualized basis. Mm. All right. So I got you kind of anticipating my next question here. So in your forecast for end of year, right, you have the stock market down 33% roughly, and you've got Bitcoin coming out on top. That's uh, kind of contrary to what you know has been happening, right? We've seen increased correlation in between, let's say, the NASDAQ, especially and Bitcoin. So do you see a decoupling? Um, and does the market stop thinking about Bitcoin this year yeah. as just the ultimate risk asset? Let's remind ourselves what really what Bitcoin is. It is the most fluid trading vehicle in the history of mankind trades 24 7 and from a trading background a guy who comes from the trading pits in chicago and i remember all the disruptions and the halts and the limits and closing exchanges it's the perfect trading vehicle never better ever mm. and that's um, just that's indisputable i'd love to sit down with someone and talk about that because it's one thing coming from the trading pits when you see all your ex-trading friends they all go to bitcoin all the ex-commodity people they all look like oh this thing is awesome if you're a trader, which I'm not anymore. So it's a leading indicator. It starts moving on Saturday and Sunday. You can tell what's going to be happening in the markets, but it's in transition from being risk on to risk off. So the key thing about Bitcoin is it's the most best performing asset in the history of mankind. So if we get mean reversion, it's prime candidate to revert. Mm. What's more likely to revert this year? Ethereum. It was up 5x last year. Okay, so you give back half of that. That's just part of markets that outperform everything else. It's just, you know, as you and Mark Nusko part talk about all the time, it's just what you have to expect. The key thing is it's in, in transition so far this year. And I think what's happening with Bitcoin is Bitcoin is, is still a small portion of any everybody and everybody's portfolio on the planet. Yet, as we see with wars and any little thing, that, everything that goes by, you see its value increasing where people leaving Ukraine can, can leave with some Bitcoin on their thumb drive and all kinds of things like that. But the bottom line is when you're trading and you see the most powerful force on the planet receding, that's the stock market. When the S&P 500 goes down, with high velocity, that's all that matters. And what's the leading indicator for that is NASDAQ. What's the most liquid asset on the planet? Bitcoin. So they're all linked right now, but my job is to pick, pick, out, pick out the D-links. And I think this year's of her D-link. It's showing it already. NASDAQ's already heading lower. It's bounced, come back, and the whole world says, oh, bottom's in, buy the dip, it's going to go up. It's exactly what you want to hear in March of 2022. It's October, November, December that really matters to me. And because to me, this year is probably potentially going to be worse than 2008. And I can't get on a program without, without saying that because I think it's my duty to warn people when I see the end near. And it's just the human nature. So that's the transition. Bitcoin, I think it's going to come out ahead. It, means it's not, it doesn't mean it's not going to be down in the year, but I think it's going to continue to outperform the biggest asset problem in the world, which is the stock market, just finally mean reverting some of that rally it's had because of the Fed put since 1987. The Fed puts gone. The market's likely heading to a significant recession, which is way overdue. And then we have this issue of a war in Europe, which it'd be wonderful if it's resolved overnight and easy, but it's very unlikely. The, the, the lineup, the recipe for a significant correction global recession is one of the best I've ever seen. What makes it different this time? Is it just the CPI print and uh, you know more room to fall in the stock market? Like, what makes you kind of change your prognosis? 
First, let's start with the simplistic things that really got me bearish in 2008 were somewhat when volatility stays low for too long, it always means for a hot higher. Now, that happened in 2018. And then it, got, it started an inch back higher. That's the VIX. It reached the lowest level ever, 100 weeks, 200 days, whatever you want to use. I use, use, use 50 to 100 weeks. It started to come back, and then we had this distortion of COVID. What did COVID do? Massive biggest distortion in history in most of mankind swings both ways in terms of liquidity, prices, Fed, um, Fed providing liquidity and government excess. But the bottom line is simplistically, as you look, I like to look at markets versus a 60 month average. Standard and commodities, that's basically five years. What's never happened before, which we kind of spoke about earlier and I've published on, is we've had both the commodity market and the stock market at the 50% mark above that 60 month average, the highest that they've ever been together at this point in time ever and now we have so you always look for simply as a market guy i look for reversions to the mean and you always looking for inflection points mm. so people say i'm technical i'm like no markets are psychological that's the most important thing but everybody is looks at a chart you can see it in a chart so to me we have the trigger I, I i can get the crude oil a little bit but the trigger is the stock market and then you look at the psychology when from six-year-olds to nine-year-olds everybody repeats the same mantra you got to be in it for long term got to buy the dip if you don't buy the dip, you're missing out on the Tina thing. Oh, my gosh, it's so scary. Yes, there is alternatives. You, you can sit in cash and not lose, but that's okay. Um, so we've reached extremes, and then you have things like the highest level of market cap to GDP in history, highest U.S. Um, prices in market cap versus the rest of the world in history, highest price to sales, highest stock market versus the housing market ever. And then you think, okay, what's the trigger? To me, we got the trigger. COVID started it way too far one way and the other. Robin Hood was a good example of ex excessive extremes we're going to be telling our grandkids about. I mean, you can't just buy stocks and make money. I remember, come on, I traded them in 2000 and made a lot of money and um, then gave most of it back. But my rule is always sell some at 50% mark. It's just been there, done that. And then you see things like cryptos, the most speculative assets on the planet. When I hear my 24-year-olds talking about knocking it around in Shibuino at bars, on Friday night and Saturday nights, you know this is pretty cool stuff, but it was indicative. Everything to me was 2021 was in what we will look back as like 1929 and say, yep, that was a sign of excessive excesses. And now we have the Fed who wakes up every morning and says, we got to do something about it. The market, I just don't think it's figured it out because once it does, it's too late. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what's happening. And I would be delighted, Michael, if I'm wrong and the stock market has a whole hum year, but I'll end with this on this. 1987. No one ever looks at that year as a ho-hum year, yet the S&P 500 ended up 2%. It just went up too high and went back. That's all it was. Simple mean reversion event. All right. Let's start breaking down some of these different buckets that we're starting to call out here. So you've written a lot about oil, right? Obviously, we've watched oil scream higher, even pre. Right, it's basically been a straight line up since uh, the pandemic, right? When it went negative uh, for that very memorable, um, you know, a couple of days. Uh, it's been a straight line up. But really, since wars, you know, the conflict has broken out in the Ukraine, we've really seen all time highs, right? I think Brent hit like $125 barrel, something like that. We're kind of trending in the other direction now. I mean, You've got, you know, I read your latest note, you kind of saw it, um, again, mean reverting here. So kind of, and the, the cure for high prices when it comes to commodities is high prices. On the other hand, you've got analysts that are calling for, you know, $200 a barrel and having it stay there. So walk me through, like, how do you think about, uh, you know, the price of oil, let's say over the course of the next year? So you have to have those type of analysts put out those extremes for extremes in the market. So the facts of crude oil is 
Um, anytime you get this far stretch, you rally this much historically. I go back to 1983 since the advent of uh, WTI crude oil futures. Every time you've had significant, the greater risks are reversion. So 1990, I was in the trading pits. Crude oil went from 20 to 40 back to 20 a few months later, and that high at 40 lasted for 14 years. What's the difference at that time? The U.S. was a significant net importer. 2008, crude oil went bumped up to 145, which by uh, is the factual, is the all-time high. We didn't even get close. 130 is the high this time. And then it dropped 80%, and the average since 2014 is around 50. I think we're going back to 50. So we just reached the greatest stretch above the 100-week moving average in crude oil history, it was like 2x above the 60-month average. Month average. So how do you measure movements in crude oil? So that's one of it. Yet this is the first time it's ever happened where North America, U.S. and Canada, is a net massive liquid fuel exporter, the largest exporter of LNG on the planet. So I'll, take, I'll give you my takeaway. First of all, um, there's demand destruction, elasticity supply, elasticity of demand, rural commodities never, you know, is uh, the higher price curve. I fully expect history to be a guide here. It's more significant, unlike when Kuwait was invaded, we lost supply, which came back later. Russia's supply is going to China, so we're not going to lose that supply, yet the market's priced for that. And then we have this major shock of recession in Europe, but the bottom line is this is going to be an example of the U.S. commodity producers, producers absolutely crushing it. I'm from the Corn Belt. I own the farm. And I can't wait to go back to visit my brethren. I speak to them all the time. Right now on the screens, corn, about $7 a bushel, is effectively double the price in Illinois. Illinois. I'd like to say it with that French accent. It's never happened. <laughs> I've never this, heard that. This, well, it's, 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 it's the French trappers who gave it the name, some of that. But it's, that's never happened, and it's somewhat sustainable because of what's happened with this major cut in production from from Ukraine. So this year will be a big test. I expect massive supply of all commodities out of the U.S. Now, this is something we wrote about months ago, but now it's starting to become political. It's the arsenal of democracy from World War II is now the arsenal of commodity production. And not only is it prudent, is it our duty, but it's also profitable. It's all the above. And the ability to do it was there before COVID. <laughs> before COVID, the U.S. liquid fuel production, I include ethanol, that's mostly crude oil ethanol. From a far background, we get a lot of our unleaded gas from ethanol now. It was in the process of exceeding consumption by about 15%. Now it's almost going to reach 20%. Mm -hmm. And that's before we really price in these price price spikes, which will reduce supply, increase demand. And here, I'll leave you with this statistic. I remember being in commodities when I ran the commodity business at S&P. It was like a decade ago. And everybody said, oh, we're going to have peak production. You know what happened? Peak consumption. In the world's largest commodity mm -hmm. importer at the time, U.S., peak North American liquid fuel consumption, it's basically been the same for about 20 years, but really started peak in 2018, around 24 million barrels a day. Now, that's all liquid fuels. And it's dropped around 23, yet the production is like 27, 28. But the point is that's before EVs. And now we're seeing the biggest tooling in the history of auto manufacture happening in the shift EVs. I've had an EV since 2014, and I wouldn't say that unless I truly believe, now this is a revolutionary technology. And the ability of the plug-in every night at home most 60% of these people have homes. It's just so convenient. But so to me, that's the macro. Crude oil's probably peaked. Yes, it might get stupid and get above 145, 150, but it's, it's usually its own enemy. I fully expect it to go back to 50. And the average cost of U.S. shale in this country is below $40 a barrel. Really? Okay. I was going to say, I thought it was like $80 a barrel for shale. Um, no, I, I have the date on the terminal. Yeah. 
and it it's and there's different sources. So I've double checked with other sources, but this is a source we have on Bloomberg Terminal, which is pretty reliable. It was around seventy dollars a barrel in two thousand fourteen. That's as hard as I go back. The significance to me is always the trend. It's the trend that matters. Is the fact that we've massively increased increased uh, money supply and everything. Yet it's been consistently declining over time. So yes, when prices go down, what you're going to do, you're, you're going to close out your, you know, you're not going to use your less productive wells, but when prices go up, you'll find every way impossible to produce more supply. And I do love when people say, oh, it's different this time. Well, we were in a pretty strong upward trajectory of supply in, uh, exceeding demand before COVID. And you mentioned earlier, once prices goes negative, it's the thing that always remember in commodities, price is the most significant. Price goes down, you learn this, learn this in a farming back, background. If corn's cheap, you ain't going to plant corn. Price goes back up, the supply will come. So I think it's delayed. It's a matter of time. We're in that silly stage. But the fact is, and every single time since 1983, crude oil has had a similar high-velocity rally, it's plunged a lot over price. Two most recent examples, 1990, took 14 years to get above that high. In 2008, we are still below that high from 2008. Yeah. And you know what? You are starting to see this pop up in politics. I don't know, especially like the, I mean, I don't know if you've listened to some of this rhetoric coming out of the White House, right? But this phrase, uh, hurting Americans at the gas pump, right? I just keep hearing that phrase over and over. It's effective rhetoric. And, uh, you know, Jim Bianco has done a great job of chronicling this on Twitter, just the precipitous rise, right, in terms of... Uh, you know, gas prices that people are paying. And, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom, I saw the governor of, of California unveiled an $11 billion uh, package that will provide some kind of relief, right, for Americans at, at the gas pump. Um, yeah. Well, I'm glad you met Jim. Jim is a good Chicagoan. I'm a big fan of his. And I love what he said recently is um, um, the Fed has to reduce the ability for people to buy stuff. And he's spot on there. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad I cringe a little bit when I heard about California because they're doing absolutely wrong thing. They're providing input is for people to buy more gas. <laughs> okay. Well, that's not going to help the problem. Why don't we produce the supply? This country can do it. Let's just make it less restrictive. Increase the biofuel mandate. Increase the ethanol mandate. And then, of course, the drill at will, which Trump held. But I think it's been a good lesson for all those people. And yes, I'm so into green. I have solar panels, electric car, all that. But I'm also in, into my grandmother not freezing to death and not having to pay extra uh, pension money to just stay warm. And to me, that's what's happened. People got a little lesson in what really matters and a lesson why people in history always died in the winter because they froze. <laughs> I mean, it's just the hardest time of year. And fossil fuels help solve that. Like the Keystone Pipeline, let's open, you know, let's get started. Let's, to me, this is now the arsenal of democracy and commodity production kicking in and no better place in the U.S. to really crush it. Now, it takes a little while, but look what just even without trying, the U.S. became the largest export of LNG on the planet, just harnessing technology. You look at China, they're pushing back on free market capital and pushing back on cryptos. They are stuck in an endless spiral, in my opinion. I'll get to it in a little bit. Then you look at the Russia gas station in the world using really old guard technology for that fuel, and we're not going to need it in a few years. I mean, it's already started to happen before this war. They just accelerated this whole process. So I want to get into that macro later, too, of how I think this is the beginning of the next awesome um, boom in the U.S. Um, proliferation of U.S. the U.S. society just accelerating versus what I heard people say that, you know, it's going to be like Rome. Rome lasted a thousand years, and we're only three year, 300 years into it. So I think this is part of that transition. I agree. 
I actually completely agree with that. Uh, I want to bookmark that though, because I've got one more question. Actually, I want to yeah. double click on uh, yeah. what you said about Gavin Newsom, that policy being what, because I, I can completely understand, right? From the perspective of a politician, hey, my constituents are telling me the number one problem, the thing that they have on their mind the most is I'm, I can't afford gas, right? It's eating into my budget or whatever. Walk me through why that solution that's been laid out in California. By the way, it's not just California. I've seen similar proposals in I believe it's Georgia or Maryland, yeah. Georgia, et cetera. Yeah. Germany just rolled out a $16.5 billion package, by the way, as well. So, so walk me through why that's not a great idea, though, specifically. Bottom line, giving people money to create more demand is not good. So if you give people money to buy more gas, they're going to they're gonna buy more gas. And, more, and there's a good recent example in history, and Mr. Trump was so perfect of what not to do. He wrote checks, I think it was about at least two years or three years in a row, to all the farmers, because three-quarters of all ag states voted for him, to help them um, with this, the lower prices. So when you write a farmer a check, what does that do? It brings on more supply. They buy new tractors. They buy what we call pivots for, um, for irrigation. They, 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 they increase their ways to produce more supply. And what did we do? We, had, we got the lowest ag prices in history around almost, I mean, the biggest plunge around 2018-19. And then he had this war with China. But he wrote checks to farmers, which increased supply, which was good for prices. But now it's the opposite. Now, writing checks... And, and he did it to buy votes. So everybody knew he's, you know, this is for votes. Like when you got the stimulus, it had his name on it. I remember my, both my father-in-law and my father, both in their octogenarians, thinking this is very silly. Why are they writing us checks? We're retired. But what's happening now, I just, all I do is know is I look at it from a macro standpoint. When you give people money to consume, <laughs> they're going to consume. That's what Jim Bianco points out right now is with happening with the, the Fed. They have to stop the ability to buy, for people to buy stuff or inflation is going to keep rising. So he just hurt the inflation issue. I'm not an expert. And my rule is never criticize something without a solution or I'm just complaining, Teddy Roosevelt. So my solution would be like focus, focus. Well, it's Teddy Roosevelt. I just, I'm just piggybacking on people like Jim Bianco and try to act like I know something. But the focus should be on solving the problem of supply and consumption. I like the EV focus, but okay, we got to lighten up a little bit. Which just bring on that supply, and there's many ways to do that, um, particularly in this country, which has the ability. In Canada, like I said, Canada and U.S. liquid fuel production will exceed consumption by about 20% this year. But can it all get down to the markets? Maybe that's part of the problem with pipelines. So if this was not a great idea, uh, Quebec said, "Hold my beer." I actually had to recheck this headline. <laughs> this is wild, man. I uh, so Quebec is actually giving citizens. $500. So they're doing that helicopter kind of airdrop money, $500 uh, to combat inflation, right? This is a quote from the finance minister, Eric yeah. Girard. The inflation situation is exceptional. So the compensation is exceptional as well. Yeah. I, I had to yeah. recheck that that was true. I was like, I can't believe yeah. that. Um, and on the one hand, I do sympathize because it's like, look, I, I get it. You're listening to people and you maybe you I can't expect politicians to know uh, how some of this stuff works. It's pretty complicated. On the other hand, it's like, come on, guy. This, you know, yeah. that's just not a good idea. Well, what's the number one purpose of a politician is get reelected. And that's why the Fed's so wonderful, obviously imperfect. But one thing we have to know about this chairman, remember, this is a guy who pushed back on Donald Trump and did not resign when he was asked to resign. And I completely respect him for that. And now his primary focus is fighting inflation. Don't dispute what he needs to do. And basically, that means your 401k. I mean, sorry, but he knows that because if people's assets keep going up, inflation keeps going up. You have to, like Jim Bianco says, you have to reduce their wealth effect.
Yeah, I would agree. So let's transition in. I want to double click on the proclamation that you made earlier. I didn't call it at the time, but this is a 2008 scenario. Could even be worse than 2008. Oh yeah, that's a big that's a big call. So walk us through. I mean, 2008. I don't remember what the peak to trough was. I, the stock market or S and P is down what 45, 50 percent or something like that over the course of. Uh, I mean, do you see like yeah. a similar reversion or like what are we talking about here specifically? Yeah. Well, I, I think the difference with 2008 is um, let's put it this way: the end result was that bottom was a perfect dip to buy, and the market's been rallying since. A little wobble in 2011. But the low was 666 in the S&P 500. I'll never forget that, unfortunately. And I was at S&P when it, it, breached, it breached double that on 1,200, 1,300. And I remember thinking, okay, uh, how long can this last? But the big difference is we had the Fed put. The Fed was easing then. We all knew the housing market was declining. It just was normal mean reversion. And it was just overdue. So, boom, we got it. Housing crisis solved. Boom, we had, you know, most significant stimulus in history. The point is what just happened now to me is the perfect storm for lower ass prices, but to stay down a long time. First of all, it's the psychology. Everybody says the same thing. I, when I hear people, you know, it's just, all oh, you got to buy the dip. Okay. You got to be in for a long term. Okay. I get it. But every time in history, you've heard extremes like this, like before the housing crisis, where we've never had, never had a housing market drop more than an, an annual basis or something like that. Even Chairman Greenspan said he was wrong about that one. Well, then it happened because it only happens because of the extremes and mean reversion. So to me, now we've got the best example ever. First of all, we've had COVID, 100-year event. We had the most significant stimulation ever. Um, simple little dip in the stock market drops quick and right back up fiscal and monetary, and now we have the most significant inflation in 40 years. And then, and then of course, the U.S. pulls out of Afghanistan, which the minute that happened and, and Russia started massing troops on the border, I'm like, okay, this is a problem. The history is, is clicking in to look back from this from the future. It makes sense. And then the massive speculation in, in our space, Michael, cryptos, I mean, Shiba Inu and Doge are going to go down in history as Shiba Inu was the absolute perfect speculation machine. I was so impressed with that, but I'm like, I'm going to tell a story to my grandkids about this someday. And that, to me, is what's happening. So if we get out of this t this year without this, I'd be shocked. But it's all coming to fruition, and it needs to happen with denial because that's how it has to work. You deny it, deny it until you finally get back to, okay, it's not just free money. We are overdue for a reset. I think it's pretty clear we're going to get a, a recession. The curve is started starting going that way. Um, I, I think, uh, and, and then, you know, the war situation. So I'll leave you with this. Is anybody like me who remembers duck and cover? We had a 30-year period where it was wonderful. I just remember you grow up knowing you could die from nuclear war. That was just it. That's all back. And we're the people making decisions now. I'm almost 60. That's the people. And to me, it's the never underestimate, as Larry Summer says, consumer sentiment. And to me, every day you see that tape, we all know something's got to happen. So here's a factual thing. It's Russia fighting a 20th century war in the 21st century where wars are economic. And the rest of the world just said, okay, there's only one right thing to do here. It's either blood or economics. Let's take the economics and take the pain of losing money. And I think any senior director, any senior person in the planet who doesn't do what they can to crush Russia does not want to be looked back upon as something that doesn't do that. So you have to take the pain. We have to completely cut them off. Swift, everything. Have to. What's the risk? They keep... I mean, they come to the, I'm from Lithuania. How do you think I got to this country? I mean, at least my mother's side is fighting the Baltic. So you have to cut them off. So Russia, severe recession. I think they were 11th economy in the world. To do that, you have to take the pain. You have to cut them off. So 
Europe, pretty significant recession. Recession. Asia, probably somewhat of recession. And U.S., we're all – it's just overdue. So the timing's right. It's psychological. You have to do it. And I don't know what prevents it. And the key thing that fits the whole puzzle, Michael, if we can just get this back up in the stock market – then the Fed's out of pictures, everything's fine. Otherwise, they're, just, they're going to just keep raising rates until we stop inflation. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. I want to get to this last issue of uh, kind of crypto and everything because one narrative that is starting to crypto always tends to need a narrative, right? In 2020, right, the the big narrative for Bitcoin was this is some kind of hedge against negative real rates, right? It's it's digital gold, et cetera. What I would remind folks uh, who haven't been around for long in that is that uh, Bitcoin has had other narratives in the past as well, uh, right? It's had the the payments narrative, it's had digital cash. The title of the Bitcoin white paper, right, is uh, peer to peer digital cash. So. Um, you know, it's, it's changed throughout the years. And, you know, a couple of the a development, right, that we started to see is people getting frozen out from the financial system in general, right? We see it, uh, it's, always, it's always been there, right? It's international policy, right? It's, it's sanctions and everything. We started to see it creep into domestic policy. You can go back to 2013, Operation Choke Point in the US. Uh, you can look at what's going on with Canadian truckers. Again, no comment on, uh, you know, whether or not I agree with those protests, but you have to admit, the Canadian government stepping in and, and freezing bank accounts of people that donated to a, a protest is pretty extreme. And now you're seeing everyone in the world globally pile on board with pretty extreme sanctions uh, against Russia. And I think the critical one was actually the freezing of central bank assets uh, yeah. you know, that, that, that the Russian central bank held. What do you think of that as a policy? Do you see the connection there between crypto? Oh, yeah. I, I, I look at it, Michael, you have to look at the decision makers from the future, what are the implications, iterations of not of looking back and saying, did I do everything I possibly could to prevent what's happening continuing? I mean, what are the countries next? There's Germany, there's Poland, there's Lithuania, there's, there's Latvia, Estonia. I mean, it's just what's happening next. There's potential nuclear war. You have to do as much as you possibly can and say, OK, it's worth that risk. So I think that, and I'm willing to have people push back on me, those who seem to know better than I do, is you have to cut off, we have to take the pain and cut off Russia completely. 
if they think that's bad for the dollar, like, yeah, go ahead and find a better currency. That's what Churchill said about democracy. There's no better currency on the planet, and cryptos are an example of that. They call them stable coins, crypto dollars. They're dollars crushing it in crypto. Oh, this was before the invasion. So to me, that's what we have to do with sanctions. And the problem is part of this is China. There was, okay, so the fact is in the union, 141 countries voted to condemn the invasion. That's 80% of the countries. Then we have a few peripheral, China supporting them. Any, what was happening before this happened is supply chain issues in China. Every country in the world is trying to find a way to remove their supply issues from China or starting to work on this. Now they have the best incentive in the world. And they have economics. And as Jeff Booth points out, they have technology going in their favor. What did Intel do? They're just putting up, building a plant in Ohio. It's, it's all happening. It's the boom for North America. Real rule of law, technology going in your favor, pushes back on Russia. You use a, a massive, by exploiting technology, we've become the, the biggest exporter and producer of agriculture and energy on the planet. That's just by exploiting the technology, despite the rules. So to me, that is what's happening. And the power to do it, the motivation to do it, and the profits to do it means you have to just take Russia and throw them down the mat as hard as possible economically. What's your choice? Blood. I have a son who's a captain in the army. I don't want him to die there for some stupid cause or for any reason. Most people in our country are like, all right, we're done with that. But we can do it economically. What's the choice? And there was a recent, a few uh, senior EU leaders get it. So that's the way you have to put your mind into it, and especially as a young person. What are the iterations for you 10 years from now, when hopefully I'm still around, of the risks here? And to me, this is a revision of the Cold War. So Russians are coming, duck and cover. And if we can do it economically and take just some pain and do a recession, why not? Versus sending troops. So you don't want to have Americans to anybody. And, and, and one thing I, I really enjoy, what's good about this, for the rest of mankind, we used to play cops and robbers and, you know, the cops versus bad guys. And now it's going to be Ukrainians versus Russians. And the rest of mankind will be the Ukrainians are the wonderful, defensive people and the Russians are the bad guys. And, and the Russian people hate that. And they all know we have to lose that analogy. But that's just a fact. I mean, they did the invasion. Sure, you can blame perf imperfections, but, you know, it's just a simple fact that um, what happened in World War II, when the Germans were said, oh, please, they wanted to, and they definitely wanted to surrender to the Americans because they knew what the Russians would do to them. Maybe this is where we can kind of transition into some of those, those bigger topics and look back in history. I, I've, I'm a little bit internally divided, frankly, on the, on the subject of sanctions. Uh, I do believe in the argument for Bitcoin that I think society would be better off net net uh, if money and payments were seen as a neutral infrastructure. And I, I'm kind of starting to to change my view and look at it as um, in the same way that, uh, you know, church and state used to be the same thing. And the church apparatus was a part of the state and that was supposed to be good for morals. And but we all know it didn't. <laughs> totally yeah, translate perfectly yeah. like that. And ultimately, that yeah. was better to have it as a separate thing. I'm starting to see money and state being better separate. Uh, but at the same time, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Because I think anyone that defends that point of view, you need to say what the negative of that. You need yeah. to say the, the downside of that, which is yeah. – I look, I'm, I'm 20 years old. I'm an American. Uh, if, if there were a war, it is not – you know, there was a draft in Vietnam. Right. So <laughs> I just have to like – you know, I, I think it's tough. I, I, I don't have a great answer for you, uh, but that's... Well, I, I, I think you just answered it. If you're going to criticize sanctions, give me a better solution. No one has a better solution. Give me a better solution. The only other solution is death, destruction, blood spilling. That's why I think we have to, what, I mean, as much as you might love or hate him, Trump taught us the lessons of the, the wars of 21st century are 
economic. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. has the biggest demand pool economy in the world, biggest military on the planet. And don't underestimate what our military can do. And I love the never underestimate the benefits of low expectations. That's the way America likes it. <laughs> it's a lesson I learned being a student here, but we like it that way. Please keep it that way. Um, because I, but it's, it's where cryptos come into play here is you kind of have to do as much as possible to crush, to starve the aggressor. That's the only solution. We have to crush the economy. What was the lessons of even the Civil War? You crush the, in the revolution, you've got to destroy that currency. We can do it in a heartbeat. Russian ruble needs to be absolutely worthless, but no one wants to touch it. There's no solution other than that if you've got, in, if you've got family or, or sons or kids, they might go die there. What's your solution? It's very simple when you have blood in the game. And our senior people get that. Everybody who's been around, who lived through the Cold War, get that. Younger people might not understand it. It's wonderful. It's okay. But, it's, I mean, I was young, too, once. I'm still, I still, still consider myself young. But, that, but that's where Bitcoin comes into play. This is just another iteration in the life of Bitcoin just shows how valuable it is. And I like to, it's been my epiphany lately. And they, on live TV, sometimes they knock back at that. That's one thing I love on Bloomberg. I don't know. Sometimes they'll really push back on me. Even though I'm a Bloomberg guy, they were giving me a hard time about nickel. And I was comparing it to Bitcoin. I'm like, anybody who's running an organized exchange and looks over to their side and sees this Bitcoin thing trading like completely fluent, never skips up, never has a problem, no broken trades, looks at what happened in nickel recently. It's like, there's a better way. And that's why low-credit Bitcoin is the most significant fluid 24-7 trading vehicle ever. And then there's the other currencies. And Ethereum is you know, revolutionizing finance. And then there's 18,000 wannabes. So that's kind of the problem. But part of that is crypto dollars. What's the most widely traded crypto asset most normally? It's Tether. Okay, but there's $180 billion now in Tether wannabes, including Tether. And they just keep going up. It's a better way. So I think this is part of the definition of Dollar dominance, Russia having a problem. Yeah, good luck, China and Russia. You're both somewhat declining economies that are run by complete dictators. I mean, they call them presidents, but what did President Z do when he came in? The first thing he did is eliminate corruption. What does that do? You have no one giving you free flow and free information. It's only yes-men. That was the problem with, with Mr. Putin, partly. He's only had yes-men tell him that, oh, this is going to work out fine. Look what, he didn't have good information. He's got getting crushed. Well, not what they expected. So to me, that's where Bitcoin comes in as the digital store value replacing gold. It has just showing its value again, and it's probably in the short term going to go down the stock market, but I think it's just going to be a matter of time then it takes off. Um, and, sh- and again, this is another example. And then things like Ethereum, much more uh, higher beta to the NASDAQ. But I have a simple thing as I look at, okay, crypto dollars, what are they denominating? Okay, Ethereum, NFTs, what are they denominating? Uh, Bitcoin. I'm sorry, um, all denominated Ethereum. And then you look over at this kind of cash flow analysis. We just published that in the terminal. Michael's my colleague who just came on. I'm kind of a markets guy, but he's more technical. And he just published it. It was the number one hit story on Bloomberg this week. And you want to know why? Because most people, traditional equity, don't get what it is. And when they say DCSF, DCF, discounted cash flow analysis, that opens their eyes. I want to zoom out for a second here uh, and kind of from that thing that we bookmarked at the beginning of this interview, talking about how, you know, I think maybe you go against the grain that, because there's this narrative right now. And, uh, you know, Mar- Marcus uh, said this on, on our uh, roundups, and I've, I, I'm not 100% sure where I fall down on it, but, you know, kind of China's playing Go. They've got a very competent set of leaders over there. They are uh, kind of outclassing us at every turn. They are an empire on the rise, uh, and the U.S. is an empire on the decline, the classic Thucydides trap. 
walk us through, like, how do you think about, you know, the kind of the dynamic interplay, like the power competition between the U.S. and China? Where do you see that shaking out? I, I, I love Mark, and but I think he's wrong in this one. And I'd love to sit down, probably move front over a cocktail <laughs> with him, because here's what's the differences. Big differences. In China, it's ruled by dictatorship right now completely. I mean, if you look at the history of China, the Ming Dynasty, why did they build the wall enclosure? I mean, they're doing it again in, in some way again. There is no free form of capital, free form of information, rule, general accepting counterprinciples, and people like me ripping into everything. That's what people get wrong sometimes about our Western system is we rip ourselves apart on a daily basis. Why do you and I have a right to talk openly on a podcast and put it out and then a million people on Twitter rip into us? That's the wonderful thing about our system. We make ourselves better. We rip it into and we come to a conclusion. And as Churchill says, we always get to the right answer eventually. I guess something like that. But that's the difference now. I completely will show China's peaked. I mean, to take a communist country, a, million, a billion people out of poverty and bring them up from poverty, okay, they did that. But now they're completely failing. The property crisis, it was way overdue. What's happened, and the, in, the ability of a dictator, okay, he's a president, but a, a, a leader, everybody has to be a yes-man now. That's just the way it works. Remember, reduction of, cap, of, of, of corruption, you should push out anybody who disagrees with you, means it virtually will always make the wrong decisions. Putin just made a bad one. Trump had the same problem. He made some bad decisions because he was... Only brought in people who agreed. What did Lincoln do with his cabinet? Brought in people who disagreed with him. But to me, that's part of this. And then you look at this, the, the facts that are happening, pushing back and rapidly advancing technology. We mentioned that earlier, but then there's one key fact from a book I read um, a little while ago, 21 Lessons of the 21st Century, Yuval Noah Harar. I think he wrote Sapiens. Countries that will fail in the future are not tolerant and where people don't want to immigrate. Boom, right there. Russia, who wants to immigrate to Russia ever again until he's gone? Who wants to immigrate to China? I mean, come on, you're under a dictatorship. You're being locked up and for COVID and you don't have proper vaccines. Why? Because we don't have a system to create proper vaccines. And the bottom line is, why do they steal intellectual property? Because they have to. Their system doesn't support it. So in this world that Jeff Booth points out is accelerating rapidly in technology, China is falling behind completely. You hear about their five years plans completely, but they do not have the ability to have adjustments based on markets. And they're what they did in Bitcoin, I was shocked that they put all their eggs in their gold basket. Biggest gold miner on the planet, and now they think that it's more valuable than Bitcoin in the next 5, 10, 100 years. Like, good luck with that one. Your prudent person, prudent investor manager and investment planner says, okay, I got 100 users' investments. I'll at least allocate one or two to Bitcoin just in case it keeps doing what it's been doing. Some, something that really resonates with me is you, know, you hear – People talk about this 30-year plan for China and how that's so great. Yeah. Look at how long-term thinking they are. We're so short-term thinking. Yeah. I think that's kind of misguided. And, you know, just in my, like, brief experience, like, in company management and everything, I, it's not like a lot of the time the best ideas come from bottom up. And you need to be able to adjust to things in real time. you got to know, you got to have your North Star that you're kind of marching towards. But setting something rigidly and just marching exactly. towards it for 30 years is not a great and and just one small piece of evidence there is the one child policy i mean jesus oh, i mean like you'd what's be hard population doing right population's declining now right you'd what's be the hard cost pressed. Of, um, labor <laughs> go way up you'd be hard pressed to find yeah. a more damaging policy you know over the course of the last 30 years i think than that one policy alone and that dovetails into you know what you said about immigration which i completely believe with uh, agree with i just Every country, the U.S., I think, I think we're demographically actually in, in a better state than um, a lot of our competitors. But yeah, it's just like yeah. every single one needs, we need more population. And it's so funny. Every country is so resistant to 
uh, immigration. And it's like, everyone should be fighting over immigrants. It's like the exact opposite of what it should be. Uh, we should be fighting for Ukrainians and Cubans and Mexicans. And as long as you come here, we give you, you follow the rule of law, make it like, come on, I'm like to say, I'm just <laughs> descendants of European peasants. And why'd they leave? Because they had nothing to go in. So let's come over here and look where we are. Just, it's a system. So I, I, that's the thing, though. We can push back each other. I have a colleague of mine in China who's been in prison for a year because she wrote something negative about the Chinese Communist Party. Poof. Good luck with that one. 30-year plan. Are you kidding? What, so, and what is the history of Hong Kong? Hong Kong was, I forget the person's name, was based almost completely on the, on the lessons of Adam Smith. It was never really centrally planned. But why did it in Singapore become booms? Because low taxes, free market capitalism, and no dictatorship. Maybe the dictator said, just do what you want as long as it doesn't mess things up. Why is everybody leaving Hong Kong? This, the brain drain is happening. There's no one on the planet that wants to go to China and start a business and succeed. They, it's just not going to – it's all going negative. It's becoming a, a more of a dictatorship, and it just, that's just a fact of history. So a 30-year plan makes no sense when you have no clue what's going to happen in the next five years with technology. So maybe a 30-year plan to go completely renewable, it might happen 20 years because of just a rapidly – fancy technology. I just look at me. The solar panels I installed my ha on a house are about 10 years old. That technology is breaking out. It's just improving. Yes, they spiked up recently in price, but it's just a matter of time. Decentralized solar is just good technology. Yeah. My electric car, it's, it's actually a plug-in hybrid. It's a Chevy Volt V. Um, and it's great. I just drove it from New York to Miami in my, my normal driving. I just, it's on electric. So uh, you know, I think that's where U.S. is going to crush it, partly because we have the discourse on a daily basis in front of everybody. Where's the discourse in China? Everybody agrees. Good luck with that one. That's the problem. I just and I grew up with that. I remember seeing the, in, in in Russia how wonderful it was the Soviet Union, how everybody agreed with each other, and then it collapsed. We've seen it happen. Been there, done that. All right. So this is where I'm going to push back on you, actually, uh, because uh, as much as I would like, and and you know, you hear this from God. I have, I've heard this from a couple of. Uh, you know, emerging markets managers in general. And uh, okay, let, let me give you a recent example, right? There was there was a question, let's say 20, 20 years or so ago, what's the next new big emerging market going to be? Is it going to be India or is it going to be China? And most people picked India because India looked more democratic than China in general, right? They said, look, though all these Westerners say, hey, they've got to figure it out, right? They've got a more democratic looking government. All these arguments that you're making China, it's a, you know, it's, they call themselves whatever, but really it's a kind of a, uh, uh, it's an autocratic regime. That didn't matter, right? Throughout history, uh, and actually, it turns out what ha what what really does matter, right? What is the more um, reliable predictor for at least economic success is strong property laws, uh, which I think China does. Yeah, so that's really important. But I got to also go back in history, and like there there were times, right? Like even back in ancient Greece, the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta. Athens, modern Western values, right? Uh, Sparta, everyone l lumps Greece in together. Sparta was like mean, man. They had this system of uh, really brutal, uh, oppressive, yeah, you'd I, call it slavery, yeah. uh, very yeah. like oligopoly uh, of rulers, yeah. helots, slaves, uh, they brutally repressed them. And there was a lot of internal rhetoric around uh, in Athens was, we are more evolved. We have these democratic values. And guess what? They went to war and they got smoked. <laughs> they got yep. smoked. Yep. Um, so I just, that that's the one area that I'd push back. Uh, I, I don't think because we have well, democratic values, that necessarily means... That doesn't necessarily translate to geopolitical influence. I the lessons I learned from Jim Rogers, and I met him in Singapore about 10 years ago, was the um, biggest problem with India is corruption. One of the biggest problems with China is corruption dictatorship. And he ended up in Singapore for a reason.
But how you figure, figure that, I'm not saying I have a solution for it, but I'm saying our system is, like Churchill says, it's the, it's the worst of all, it's the worst except for all the other ones. And I th fully expect in a world of advancing technology, I see it all signs like now, it's going to crush it. Now, just give you the simple examples right now. Why is the North America completely commodity excessively independent and ability just bring on supply like no time in history because of technology and because we 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 um, adopted it all right so let's just, let's wrap up here with some more like kind of uh tactical advice for folks who are kind of like is like i i have this problem too right i'm, I'm kind of looking out at the world at, at everything in general and here are the, here are the two mindsets that i continuously kind of flip between assets i know they've taken a haircut but still within spitting distance of all-time highs. And it actually is crazy because yeah. now it's commodities, all-time highs, stocks near all-time highs, bonds near all-time highs, real estate, all-time highs, crypto, okay, it's down a little bit, but it's relatively expensive. It, so on the one hand, it's like, wow, maybe I should not be buying anything and I should be sitting in gold, even gold. Everything together is at all-time highs. Yeah. Um, now, the yeah. problem with that is it's very easy to say, okay, maybe I should wait in cash and wait for the market to give me a buying opportunity. The problem is the most likely reason why all of those things are at all-time highs is that cash is being debased. So, man, wouldn't I feel silly, yeah. right, if I just hold my cash here? And yeah. I, I've correctly identified the problem, and my solution is to hold my wealth in this thing that is the reason why all of this stuff is at all-time highs. So that, how, do you, how do you balance those two things? That, the cash was beaten in space. The, the flip switch, as my colleague wrote the other day, it's no longer the Fed put the Fed selling calls. Heed the Fed, and I would say there's a better, there's a good way to handle these things. If these asset prices keep going up, it allows people to buy more stuff, increase inflation. That's the problem. To me, there's times to underweight and overweight. It's been one of the best, as Jeremy Graham says, best appreciation periods in the history of mankind for all people's wealth, real estate, stock market even bonds until recently, lighten up. <laughs> Where you put that money? Alternatives. It's okay to sit in cash, Bitcoin, gold. And I do like bonds for a little bit, long bonds, because I fully expect we're going to have a reversion period that might be as enduring, it almost always is, simple reversion of this appreciation period. And the key fact is currency is not being debased anymore. The Fed is raising rates, and the Fed has to reduce our ability to buy stuff or they're not doing their job. And Chairman Powell knows how history will judge him. If he doesn't jawbone, right now he's just jawboning. Now we're gonna see 50 basis point, basis point hikes. And if the market doesn't start giving back, you're gonna see 100 basis point hikes. That's from someone who used to watch the Fed, just a lesson I learned. Don't underestimate the Fed, who's going down in history of being potentially as a person who helped create the bubble. That's what they're worried about now. We help create this bubble, that's the word. It's our job to do what we can. So the simplistic thing that fits the whole puzzle, like I said, 20% doesn't matter for the stock market. If it drops a third, 30%, to me, everything resets. We're all better. We can have a bear market period for a while. That wealth equality for all the people in Boca who can afford those condos because their 401ks are blasting off comes back down, and everything resets. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. All right, Mike, uh, I know we're running low on time here. This has been fantastic. Uh, folks want to find out more about you, read the work that you do at Bloomberg, which I highly recommend. Folks, if you aren't subscribed, definitely should. Uh, what's the best way to uh, either get in touch with you or follow your work, Mike? Well, I'm most active on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Happy to link in with people. I post to Twitter. I just don't have the time to be active. I'm Mike McGlone 11. And if you're really interested, I'm willing to put you on my distribution list as long as you don't harass me too much. But I'm always willing to um, listen to other views um, because that's how I hone my views. I have to hear point and counterpoint. And I really appreciate you, Michael, for having me on because I listen to all your programs. I love the ones the most when you and Mark knock it around. 
and um, it's just that 24-7 education you get from podcasts, which is so elevating. I just love that intellectual stimulation. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate the kind words. And with those nice things, someone else said a nice thing about me. With those kind words about me, we'll wrap the show, and uh, we'll have to do this again sometime soon. Yeah.